Hi, I'm Mike Reese. I've been writing for The Simpsons for 30 years. In my free time, I've visited 130 countries, not by choice. Find out where I've gone, what I've done, and most of all, what am I doing here? 23andMe told me that I was 98.7% Jewish, and I thought, really, that little? And when you're Jewish, you don't really care about revisiting your roots, because you're not seeing the country you came from, you're seeing the country you were chased out of. In my case, I'm half Russian, and my family's story is so sad, it makes Fiddler on the Roof look like a musical. I mean, I know Fiddler on the Roof is already a musical, but I was referring to a happy musical like Annie, not a sad musical like, uh, Fiddler on the Roof. Nonetheless, I visited Russia twice. The first time was with the tour group in 2001. The country was not quite ready for us. Every couple of hours, our tour bus would stop in the woods and our guide would tell us, This is your toilet stop. This is truly a wonderful forest to urinate in. It was summer, the temperatures hovered around 100 degrees, and the hotels had no air conditioning. Each night you could sleep with the windows open and be eaten alive by mosquitoes, or close the windows and be baked alive. Those were your options. Freedom of choice had come to Russia. Crime had come too. There was no restaurant, bar, or hotel in any corner of the world's largest country that was not being shaken down by the Russian mob. The tour group I was traveling with was largely elderly and largely never shut up. But their endless chatter stopped abruptly when we entered Red Square and laid eyes on the Kremlin. These were children of the Cold War, and this building represented pure evil and the threat of nuclear annihilation. Now, the red brick building with the candy-colored domes seemed cute and small and toothless, just like them. For the record, the Kremlin is the fortified wall around Red Square. What everyone calls the Kremlin is actually St. Basil's Cathedral, which would never be the seat of power for the atheistic communist regime. It's like confusing the White House with the Waffle House, which was only true during the Clinton administration. Not far from what everyone calls the Kremlin is Lenin's tomb, a structure no bigger than a newsstand. You descend a short flight of steps to visit a waxy figure that may be Lenin, but is probably a wax figure. There are large signs in several languages reading, Do not make jokes. So of course, I made a joke. I asked, do they dress Lenin in different outfits for the holidays? My wife laughed and a guard pointed a machine gun at her. Interestingly, the Russians want to get rid of Lenin's tomb. It honors a man who brought the country a repressive regime that collapsed after 70 years. It's only open to make the tourists happy, as I'm sure Trump's tomb someday will be. The sooner the better, I say. I went back to Russia two decades later and everything had changed. The Cold War was over and Western decadence had won. Moscow's Tverskaya Street rivaled New York's Fifth Avenue for high-end shopping and fine dining. Good food in Russia? That's a revolution! It was a warm Russian winter with temperatures in the high nothings, and this once godless country had gone cuckoo for Christmas. Red Square went over the top with lights and decorations. Wherever there wasn't real snow, there was fake snow. Lenin's tomb was flush up against Santa's workshop. 
In true capitalist spirit, I was in Russia on business. I'd been asked to give a lecture on The Simpsons to an audience of Soviet entrepreneurs. Whenever I get an offer like this, my first question is, who did you ask first? In this case, it was Uma Thurman. Of course, if you can't get the gorgeous, world-famous actress, bring in some Jew you never heard of. But the weird surprise was, they had heard of me. The Russians, for some reason, go absolutely borscht for The Simpsons. When my limo arrived at the hotel, yes, they sent a limo, I was mobbed by paparazzi. Autograph hounds waved publicity photos of me that I didn't even know existed. My hotel, by the way, was the Moscow Ritz, where Donald Trump allegedly romped and, let's say, showered with four prostitutes. Having stayed there, I believe it. My suite was so luxurious, you'd feel like you could get away with anything. And the decor was so baroque, the KGB could hide cameras anywhere. I arrived at the lecture venue the next morning. It was Moscow Olympic Stadium, and I'd be addressing 15,000 Russian entrepreneurs. That's a lot of entrepreneurs for a former communist dictatorship. Many in the audience spoke English. The rest received simultaneous translation through headphones. The opening speaker was announced, Richard Gere. He strode on stage to dead silence. He flashed that dazzling movie star grin and proclaimed, Hello, Moscow, I love this city. More dead silence. None of the speakers who followed him got any response either. Not Malcolm Gladwell, not the ultimate fighting champion of the world. We were a pretty random assortment of speakers. The only thing we had in common was that nobody wanted to listen to us. It was seven hours of thunderous indifference, broken up by a lunch where the businessmen down liquor like prohibition was coming back. I was the final speaker, and as BBC Russia reported, Tonight, Mike Reese told great jokes to a gravely silent audience. I shrugged it off. I figured this is how Russian audiences always were. I asked the Russian organizer how she thought the day went. She said, This was a complete disaster. Tomorrow they are tearing down the stadium. That's a pretty harsh review. You were so bad they tore down the venue. Still, I felt proud. My ancestors left this country a century before without a penny in their pockets. I was leaving with a speaker's fee of $10,000. When I got home, the check bounced. It bounced and it bounced and may still be bouncing. I've lectured on The Simpsons in 22 countries, and that's the only time it ever happened. You can read about it in my Simpsons memoir, Springfield Confidential. It's available in English, Spanish, German, and we recently sold the Russian language rights. That check bounced too. <laughs> Except for being the epicenter of a plague that sickened millions and cratered the world economy, Wuhan is a pretty nice place. With a population of 8.5 million, it's what the Chinese consider a small town. I was there a few years back as part of a junket, teaching Chinese filmmakers about my work on The Simpsons, a show they neither watched nor had ever heard of. The lone fan I met had me autograph a Chinese box set of Simpsons DVDs that was handsomely packaged and entirely fake. But pretty much everything you buy in China is fake. Purses, perfume, pork products. I purchased a $15 Rolex in Wuhan that was either a knockoff or selling at a sweet 99 dollars 
27% discount. You cannot trust Chinese people, said my Chinese guide, an intense little woman named Yao. They will screw you over. Yao had conceived and organized this whole trip. Midway through our 12-hour flight from LA to Beijing, she cautioned me that unscrupulous Chinese producers would want to make deals with me. I will protect you, she said. Thank you. I want 5%. She immediately pulled a contract from her Louis Vuitton fake handbag. I signed the document, fearing that if I didn't, she would push me off the plane at 30,000 feet. I hadn't even landed in China, and I'd already been extorted. Yao didn't seem happy either. As the jet touched down in Beijing, she told me, 5% is too low. I want 10. No, I already signed a contract. Your contract. Yao had even screwed over Yao. Our first stop in Beijing was with the Chinese Minister of Animation. I regulate every cartoon produced in China and report on each studio to the government. I am also the voice of Chinese Donald Duck. The minister showed me his newest project, Peking Opera Stories Adapted to Cartoon Form. He hoped these would get teenagers interested in this ancient Chinese art. He showed me one five-minute cartoon and asked my opinion. You must be honest, he said, taking a grim pull from a coffee mug emblazoned with a grinning Donald Duck. Honestly, I said, I found it really boring and couldn't imagine a teenager enjoying it. I see. We have made 140 of these. And this is the problem. The Chinese have the fastest growing movie business in the world, producing films that gross billions in China and zilch overseas. Chalk it up to cultural differences. Foreigners don't like bad movies. And they are bad. Ponderous historical dramas, sexless romances, and comedies so screechy and pointless, not even the French enjoy them. From Beijing, we moved on to Harbin, Hubei, Guangzhou, Guangdong, Gangplau, and Guanacou. They're all cities larger than New York, and I'd never heard of any of them. Have you? If so, you're lying. Gangplau is a farming tool, and Guanaco is a kind of llama. All these cities are built on a basic Chinese model. Bulldoze three millennia of history and replace it with skyscrapers, shopping malls, KFCs, and knockoffs of KFC. I've seen KLC, KLG, UFO, and yes, OFC, Obama Fried Chicken. My favorite city was Guangdong. It's filled with the kind of weird wonders you'd only see in China. The parks are packed with old people playing hacky sack. Actually, it's a local variant featuring a dart on a spring. The seniors play it all day long and have gotten really good at it. Why do they do it? The government told them to, to keep them busy. So they'll keep at it till the government gives them permission to stop or die. The entire skyline of Guangdong, two dozen buildings, have been covered with LEDs, and every night the city becomes one big video screen. Like their movie business, they have all the technology and no idea what to do with it. The night I was there, the presentation was 10 minutes of giant goldfish swimming from building to building. They basically turned the whole city into a screensaver. They also built a long glass observation deck, protruding over a thousand foot deep gorge. To make this even scarier, the dick-shaped deck juts out from the crotch of a giant concrete sculpture of King Kong, or rather, a ripoff of King Kong. It wouldn't be a Chinese attraction without some copyright infringement. But make no mistake, the King Kong of Guangdong has a long ding-dong. Oh, I'm so ashamed. 
While in Guangdong, I visited the animation studio that produced Bunko, the Bart Simpson of China. And their Bart looked a lot like our Bart. Spiky hair, blue shorts, yellow skin. The only difference was Bunko was twice as tall as Bart, and he had no nose. I met Bunko's creator, a handsome young man they called the Matt Groening of China. He had a much bigger office than Matt Groening, the Matt Groening of America. Bunko's bunker was a six-story animation complex with state-of-the-art studios, art gallery, and gift shop. What they didn't have was viewers. Though they assured me Bunko was a worldwide phenomenon, no one I met in China had ever heard of it. Animation fans have never heard of it. Google has never heard of it. The whole gorgeous studio may have been a front for a money laundering operation. Maybe that's why they call it Bunko. Nothing much had come of this junket until I met Dr. Fu. Dr. Fu, that is not his real monosyllable. Dr. Fu is called the Walt Disney of China. By now, you may have noticed that everything in their country is called the Something of China. Their top tourist attraction should be called the Great Wall of China of China. Dr. Fu owns China's largest amusement park. He also runs the best aquarium I've ever visited and the only entertaining circus I've ever seen. Screw you, Cirque du Soleil. Your clowns act like they're better than me. Dr. Fu also owns a zoo packed to the rafters with exotic animals. Think rhinos are rare? Not at Fuzu, where you see way too many rhinos all packed into one enclosure. Excited to see one panda cub? This zoo has the world's only set of panda triplets in clear violation of China's one-child policy. Are they really triplets? All panda cubs are identical and adorable. So it's possible they grabbed three cubs from three mothers and put them in one pen. Or that they pumped one poor panda mother full of fertility drugs. Or they repainted some beagle puppies. My theory is that Dr. Fu put a gun to a female panda's head and hissed in her ear, have triplets. You see, Dr. Fu is a very intimidating character. So much so that I'm going to call him Dr. Woe for the rest of this article. Even his alias needs an alias. Woe gets what Woe wants, and on this visit, Woe wanted me. He invited me to his private dining room, where in true Bond villain fashion, one entire wall was a tank of great white sharks. I want you to make an animated film about my panda triplets and 52 episodes of a panda cartoon series, he told me. How long will that take? It would probably take four years, but knowing he wouldn't have the patience for that, I told him two years. I want it in six months, he said. <laughs> you got it, I told him. It was a physically impossible task, but no one says no to woe. As his assistant lamented to me, He once ordered me to get him a whale. Where do you buy a whale? My tour guide Yao emailed me that night, warning me to be careful dealing with Dr. Woe. I know, I wrote back. He's a slippery character. And for reasons I'll never figure out, Yao forwarded my email to Dr. Woe. The man had just made me a hugely generous offer, and I called him a slippery character. Woe canceled our deal, and Yao and I returned to America empty-handed. Why did she do it? This could have been a million dollar deal. With her 5% commission, Yao stood to clear a cool $50,000. It's like she knew that someone had to get screwed. So she double-crossed me, and as a result, triple-crossed herself. 
Since that visit to China, Yao and I haven't spoken. One of the local mayors I met has gone to jail. Dr. Wo was accused of flying helicopters into Africa at night and kidnapping giraffes. To date, no one has ever seen a Bunko cartoon. And I learned that every night at midnight in Times Square, all the buildings light up in an elaborate video show even better than the one in Guangdong. It's just three blocks from my apartment, but who wants to go to Times Square at midnight? What Am I Doing Here was written and recorded by Mike Reese and produced by Josh Perillo. Additional voices by Michael Yushao, Carolyn Chu, and Trevor Morris, Mike's Funny Doorman.